0: Hello everyone. Welcome to the second season of For the Love of Books podcast, featuring Indian small press authors with host Eva Palova. I would like to thank our sponsors, Doc Chavent, The Lowell Letter, and Modern History Press. Today, I will be chatting with author Debbie Frontiera, who will announce the details of her book giveaway of Superior Tapestry at the end of the interview, Debbie is a native of Michigan's Upper Peninsula who lived away for many years and returned there for summers beginning in 2020. And now she has returned permanently. She has published books in many genres, three of which have won awards. Hello, Debbie. How are you on this hot summer
1: day? I, I'm i fine. It's not too hot where I am, though. It's, uh, oh, probably Late upper upper 60s and very windy. So it's not too hot here. I'm I'm happy about that.
0: That's good. You don't need to have the AC running, right?
1: Okay. Right. In fact, at our at our camp, we don't even have AC except to turn on a fan or open the window. Cool. <laughs> That's the way it should be. All right, let's talk about your book. Superior
0: Tapestry, Weaving the Threads of Upper Michigan History. Tell us all about it, about this amazing journey through the UP history, 400 years of UP history. That's a lot of history.
1: Right. What I did was to take uh, 27 different artifacts, uh, rocks, trees, um, rivers, and tell segments of history from the point of view of that object. Um, For instance, uh, the the very first chapter, uh, describes the building of a native birch bark canoe in the early, in the probably mid to late 1600s and how that process was done. And then um, I take this canoe on a trip from St. Ignace around the rapids at Sault Ste. Marie and all the way to Duluth to uh, show how Native Americans used canoes for travel and how they interacted with uh, the French-Canadian fur trappers at that time. And um, there is actually a replica of such a canoe in the... uh, the Ojibwe Museum of Culture in St. Ignace. And there's a photo of that right at the beginning of the chapter so that you have this real object in mind or a replica of a real object. And then you get the history behind it and the story involved with it. Uh, The second chapter deals with the the rapids of the St. Mary's river, who's there And right there in the middle of it all, uh, watching humanity deal with the fact that you can't take a boat up the rapids and the various ways that people did that from portaging to the building of the first lock uh to the super locks of today and always the 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 rapids were right there in the middle of it all where she as i describe her it watched everything happen um Then there are some chapters that deal with a little bit more localized. Uh, There's a chapter with the bell from the Edmund Fitzgerald, which was a, a, a freighter that went down in Lake Superior in a gale in November as recently as 1972. And I gave the feeling of, you know, what was that bell thinking all through this storm, clanging away in the wind and the rocking of the ship? And what was that bell's last thought as the ship is going down? And then what did the bell have to think about sitting on the bottom of the lake for all the years before technology advanced to a point where it could be retrieved? So there are some things that are very modern like that. There are some things that that go all through the years. One of the chapters is on one of the trees in Estevant Pines. That's a nature sanctuary at the very tip of the Keweenaw Peninsula where some of the trees are four and 500 years old and a huge girth. It's one of the last virgin forests of the state. And uh, I used the idea that uh, the trees are all connected through the roots. I don't know if you remember the movie Avatar Yes. Uh, where the trees talk to each other, there's mm-hmm. actually scientific evidence now that there is a connection between trees and there I- there are forms of communication through the root systems. I believe so that. I let the tree learn about the, yeah, through the root systems, and then as the tree observes all those years of what's going on around it and you know basically from a, a time when there were only Ojibwe travelers to the modern day when one of those trees was actually cut down and made people angry enough to establish a sanctuary there. So it takes all of those things into consideration. And there are some characters, uh, like, for instance, um, Bishop Baraga, the first bishop of the Diocese of Marquette. He shows up in several chapters simply because he was involved with a lot of different places all across the U.P., he was. So that's why I used the idea of weaving a tapestry, because there, there are different threads that come in. Um, when it came to the lumbering industry, I used um, the Fox River in Sini And what she sees about all these trees being mowed down along her banks, mm-hmm. um, I used a, a, play, a player piano that was once in a bar in Sini to describe the wild days of Sini. And then later on, I used a cross-cut saw that's in a, a, a museum in Ontonagon to talk about the the very end days of the biggest, uh, the biggest lumbering days and how it faded out from clear cutting into now where they're doing actually sustainable forestry. So that's why all these ideas are intertwined as As you go through the book, some chapters are like a single short story. Some chapters have a connection with other chapters as you go through it. So it was a way of using um, creative nonfiction to take a lot of interesting facts and little known places and bring them to life for my readers. So what common thread runs through all these chapters? What do they all have in common? What elements? Um, the element that they would have in common would be the perspective of the artifact that's involved, that each artifact is given a personality, uh, given gender. I refer to things as either he or she and given personality. And so that it goes a little deeper into history. Um, it was fun to work with personality. One of the objects is the giant, uh, steam pump. Out of the chaplain mine in Iron Mountain, uh, who has an ego as big as he is, and is bragging all the time about all the work he does keeping the water out of the mine. You know, to the point that he ignores everybody else's job because he's the most important thing there. To um, the personality of <coughs> the Ontonagon Boulder that I refer to as she, who resents these human beings chipping pieces off of her and digging her up and trying to move her somewhere else. That, that, that artifact is actually in the Smithsonian Institution now and not always on display. Uh, so it was fun to give these things personality and let them express themselves in that creative way, but still get the facts across. Wow. Does that make sense? I <laughs> love it. That is very creative.
0: So you brought the objects alive and gave them personality,
1: character. Very cool. That must have been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a lot of, it's, right, elaborate personification. And I got to tell you this, too. I had the idea from the fall of 2019, Mm -hmm. but um, it, uh, and so I had started working on it before COVID began. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I was, I, as I was down south for the winter because I, I'm, I'm a snowbird. I admit that, but I have children and grandchildren in Houston, Texas, so we spend the winter down there. I took over, I took all my stuff to South with me, and then I'd run across a chapter that I thought, oh, I can't do this chapter until I can get into Michigan Tech Archives, because I know they have information on this, or, mm-hmm. oh, I really need to talk to some of the people that run the this or that or the other museum. I have to wait till I get back up there to do that. And then COVID hit. Oh, God. And I got back to the UP, and I couldn't go to Michigan Tech Archives, and I <laughs> I couldn't go to all these little museums. Bummer. Uh, Google became my best friend. Yeah. On the other, on the upside, stuck at home, I had plenty of time to work on it. Yeah. Uh, but it was digging out the facts. It became challenging. And um, that was interesting because I, I did a lot of interviewing by phone, mm-hmm. um, by email. I would I would find an email or a phone number on a museum site, and I would call the number or email it and say, hey, can I talk to somebody about this, that, or the other? And they, they would all get back to me. We had some really interesting phone conversations. and But there were some things I, I couldn't get to at all. Um, when I wanted the picture of the uh, the rapids at the St. Mary's River, um, the historian that I worked with by phone had said that the best view of it was from the Canadian side of the river, there was a little park there where you could get right up to the shoreline and get really good pictures. So I thought, okay, uh, things will loosen up in the summer, and they did, except the border with Canada was still closed. Closed. Oh. Mm-hmm. So uh, I looked up. I looked up U.S. Customs and I called them and I explained to my predicament, and he said, "You're talking to the wrong side of the border." And I said, "I know, but..." I can't find their phone number online. You wouldn't have a phone number, would you? Well, yes, they did. So I talked to, I called the number and I talked to this very pleasant lady. Said, look, I don't have to get out anywhere. I just need to cross the bridge, drive to that little park. She knew what park I was talking about. I said, get out of my car, take the pictures and leave. I don't have to get gas. I don't have to stop for water. I don't have to do any interaction with anybody inside a building. She said, I understand what you're saying, but uh, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> so I wound up, uh, a friend of a friend put me in touch with a man who lived on the Canadian side of the border. Okay. And he said, yeah, he'd be glad to go down to that little park and take that picture and email it to me. So <laughs> it was really fun, some of the connections I made and, you know, getting around COVID restrictions to get what I needed to get. Well, you got it. You have a company. I got it. Yeah.
0: What inspired you to write this book?
1: I had um, about a year, oh, I guess it was the summer of 2018. I had done an article on um, Esteban Pines for the Marquette Monthly. And When they asked me to do the article, I said, well, how about if I do it from the point of view of a pine tree? Uh And the editor said, well, that sounds interesting. So I did it. And that became one of the chapters later. All I had to do was expand it from a thousand word article into a chapter, which wasn't that hard. Okay. Uh, Just a minute. Sorry about that. Uh, phone rang. Um, and then, uh, I had gotten the idea from um, uh, Tony at Copper World, and I told him about some other things I'd done with personification, and he said, oh, you should do something like that with uh, historical stuff around the U.P. Yeah. Yeah. That's intriguing. Mm -hmm. I sat down one day to brainstorm, and within, within 10 minutes, I had 20 different objects that I could do. And so I thought, yeah, this could work, and um, pitched it to uh, Victor Volkham at uh, Modern History Press, and he said, well, that sounds interesting. Let's do it. And you know, then we got together on a contract, and, and I, I published with his small press. So. I like that. How many years of research went into this book? Uh, probably about two years of research. Okay. It, it, Usually when I write a book, I start at the beginning and I push through to the end and I have it all outlined. Uh But with this one, I was in different stages of various chapters at the same time. If I couldn't get information on one object, I would Google the next one.
0: Okay. And
1: so while I was taking notes on that, I might be waiting for someone to call me back or email me back on a different Different ones, so it, it went together in pieces like that, and literally got woven together. Uh, but uh, so it's the first book where I've done mixed that much nonfiction in with a fiction idea of using uh, personification. You've done great! Oh, some, I'm some very of How
0: one. you? Created yeah. this hybrid. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> what were some of the challenges? In writing this book, obviously, you already have mentioned one of them, digging out the facts during COVID.
1: Why? Right. And, and-, and sometimes I, I was challenged by not having as much information as I wanted. Okay. So you have to work with what you have, what you don't right. have. And so some, some chapters are relatively short, others are longer, depending on how much information you know, I could get on a particular topic. And uh, working with working with the objects, deciding on the personalities, and whether or not I would come off as male or female, that got challenging sometimes, too, because I can imagine there that. were some objects. Like, yeah, some things could go either way. Uh, generally, my things of nature turned up female. But then it came to uh pictured rocks and my character cliff, you know, uh, the name for the for the cliffs, mm-hmm. well, yeah, yeah. Cliftina, nah, nah, that was a work. So Cliff had to be male, you know. <laughs> and also I had already made I had already made the stone uh in uh St. Anne's Church, the, the the name stone the cornerstone if you will, I had already made that male. And The cliffs at um, Pictured Rocks and the quarries, uh, sandstone quarries at Jacobsville on the Keweenaw Peninsula, with 150 something miles in between them. That's when you look at the geology of it, that is all one huge sandstone formation that all formed about, I don't know, two billion years ago, something like that. I've forgotten the exact number. So If Cliff was going to be male, uh, Mm -hmm. the stone had to be male because they are, after all, part of the same thing, kind of like conjoined twins. Mm -hmm. So that had to come into it, too, where the connections came. If this one's male, then that one has to be male. And I also tried to keep a balance between masculine and feminine among the objects. So it's roughly half and half. Okay. And That's there were some things that, well, this this could be this could be male, but yeah, this could be female too. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh what do I have more of or less of right now? <laughs> and then form you know, the personality that way, keeping a balance. So
0: how long did it take you to put this all together from the initial idea to getting the book on the market? Uh two years. Two years. Yeah, all total. That's mm-hmm. decent. I thought it would have taken yeah. you longer than that. That's very decent for that much research and that much fun, right? What sets you well, apart from- you
1: stuck at home 24-7 for several months.
0: You know? Yeah, I know. Uh, I've been there,
1: there, too. Well, okay, I've been there. <laughs>
0: what sets you apart from other authors in your genre? Um-
1: I think one thing that sets me apart is I've never stuck in exactly one genre. I have published poetry. I have published uh, children's books. I have published nonfiction. I've published sci-fi fantasy future world. So I'm kind of all over the map. And I don't know too many other authors that have played around in as many different genres as I have. Mm What? Uh, I, th- I think that's one thing that sets me apart. I'm always a little outside the box.
0: Well, that's awesome. I like that. <laughs> what are the major takeaways from superior tapestry?
1: I think the major things are for people to have a little bit more fun learning facts uh, in a little bit more interesting way. Sometimes straight nonfiction can get a little dry. Yeah. And, you know, some people who write nonfiction, it'll end up sounding more academic. And that turns some readers off. Mm -hmm. And also, I wanted this to be something that would appeal to a wide variety of people. Somebody who, as it was coming to the UP for the first time, could pick it up. And learn a lot of short bits of history and think, oh, I want to learn more about this. And there's a Mm -hmm. big long bibliography in the back. telling you want to find more information. Or families could get it and they could read it to younger kids because you can always read to a child four or five years ahead of their reading level. Yeah. Their comprehension level is always higher, so fam- you know, parents could read it to younger children, and younger kids could enjoy it as much as the adults who were reading it. Um, I also put some educational aspects into it, and um, with a friend of mine who is a, a current teacher at um, the Calumet, uh, Laurie and Keweenaw schools, put together a unit that can be used in either middle school or high school. To uh, teach some of the history, and to look at the historical aspects as they become literary aspects, and mix social studies with, with uh, language arts. So uh, there's that that takeaway to it too. That kids can, students and adults can really learn something from it. Yeah. What have you learned about yourself from writing this book? Ah, uh, how far I can stretch my imagination. But still, remain uh, within accepted boundaries for nonfiction, <laughs> and I hadn't ever done that before. And so, it was a new challenge for me to to mix mix two genres and see how it came out. Okay, what do you? And I, think... I really had fun. It sounds like it. What do you feel you did right? A lot of people have commented that. I, I, did, I did write with, um, with the technique I used okay. and that they really enjoyed it. One, one woman emailed me later saying, each chapter I read, oh, this is my favorite chapter, and I'd get to the next, and oh, no, this is my favorite <laughs> chapter, which made me feel really good. So I, I think I came across the way I wanted to, to senior citizens and young people. And that's that's a challenge right there to have oh, yeah. something that goes across sure. a variety of age ranges. What would you have done differently? I wish I could have gotten out on site to more places okay, um, rather mm-hmm. than having to glean facts because there's a little something that adds when you're really with people. Mm-hmm. And yes. I was able to get an initiative Tech archives by... Uh, August of 2020, when I was wrapping up the first draft, um, I had to make an appointment, wear a mask, all of that stuff. And you could only have a a two hour time slot because Mm -hmm. I couldn't have more than like three people in the room at the same time. So, but at least I could get there. And that I was really grateful for because the archivist there found a poem in a night in an 1865 newspaper that became the ending of the um, chapter on the Quincy man car and how miners went up and down out of those old mines from slippery ladders to the man car, you know, to a, uh, a man engine and then to the man cars. And that poem really set off the end of that chapter in a really good way of the safety involved and how much more dangerous it was when they were climbing ladders that would get slippery with, with rain and ice and other things, so that one trip and finding that poem just it made a big difference.: oh, yeah. What
0: is the funniest or most bizarre thing that has ever happened to you during an in-person author's event?.
1: Uh. <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, Several years ago, when I had a children's book about the bats underneath the uh, bridge in Austin, Texas, and I had this little picture book, which is no longer in print, and I was there at at this bat fest and um, as part of uh, um, another booth, and I had this couple come up with these two little chubby-cheeked red-headed boy and girl twins and they were buying the book. And I said, "Eh, what are their names? And, uh, the mother said speed and roadie. And I'm going to myself, you actually named your kids speed and roadie. And I'm not saying this out loud. I'm just thinking, Oh my gosh, this is the, this is the crowning of weird names for kids. And, but I kept a straight face and, and I said, and how are you spelling that? <laughs> I wrote the kid name there and handed the book. <laughs> it was just like, oh my gosh. <laughs> you know. Wow. Yeah, not expressing the the idea that how could you keep your kids' names like that? Not saying that out loud, that was <laughs> Definitely funny and, and a challenge to keep a straight face. Oh, yes.
0: Would you like to read to us,
1: Debbie, from your book? Yes. Superior Tapestry. I, I'd, like to read, I'd like to read the very opening paragraphs from uh, chapter one, uh, titled Birchbark Canoe. The great sturgeon slides swiftly and gracefully through the water. Ojibwe legends say that it inspired the shape of their canoes. Using a canoe is much faster than walking, so that's how the Ojibwe liked to travel. Lakes and rivers were their highways because forest paths were hard to walk on and went up and down mountains. To ensure that they would last many years, canoes were carefully built and looked after. One winter, the wind howled and blew the trees day after day. The old birch tree had swayed and stood tall through many such blizzards, but she was old and weak now. A mighty gust struck her and she fell flat between two trees in the forest behind her. She hoped she would turn into soil to feed new birch seedlings, even though she knew that would take many years. She had seen Ojibwe women carry baskets made of birch bark when they came to pick berries in the summer. So she knew that she might come, some of them might come to strip her bark Birch bark, or Bibi, as she liked to call herself, knew that birch bark was good for many things, including stopping fungus from spoiling food stored in such a basket. When the snow melted, she was exposed and woke by a cut of a stone axe. It hurt as it split Bebe down the length of her truck, but the wedges prying Bibi away from the rest of the log seemed to free her to a new life. The men walked heel to toe, counting. When they reached 18, they nodded. One said, good, we can make this new canoe from a single log. One of them picked up the long curl of bark and carried her away. Bebe managed to whisper goodbye to the rest of the tree as the man carried her across the meadow and into the forest on the other side. She wondered what a canoe was. Not long after, she found herself on the ground in the middle of an Ojibwe village. Since it was getting dark, the men who had carried her into his who had carried her entered his wigwam, and which was what they called their houses. A crow landed on Bibi. She knew him because he had often landed on her branches in the forest. What's a canoe? she asked him. People sit in it and travel over the water, Crow said. This village is close to the waters of t- where two great lakes come together. You will see it in the morning. Then he went on to explain wh- that many Native peoples often got together where Lake Michigan and Lake Huron joined up with the narrow strip of water called the Straits. Mackinac Island, St. Ignace, and Mackinac City were all there. The Ojibwe from Lake Superior area and the o- Ottawa of Lake Michigan region and the Huron people shared many customs. Their languages were also similar since they were part of a greater group known as the Anishinaabe. Or first man. And I'll stop there at this point. Okay, thank because you. Because it goes on to explain what she hears, what she sees, and what goes on around her as she's being built. Uh the different t- methods they used when all they had was stone axes and pitch from trees and, and one thing and another. Yeah. So that's a pretty good idea how I built that personality in. Yeah. And you know, worked a little imaginary conversation between the crow and, and and the piece of birch bark. Yeah, very nice. Can
0: you announce the details of your book giveaway of Superior Tapestry?
1: In the very back, there's a list of all of the chapters. And if someone visits at least 12 of the 27 sites and um, checks them off on that little list, then they can take a picture and email it to me and um, receive a discount when they order any of my other books from my website. So they like Superior Tapestry. They visit my website, which, you know, if you just Google Deborah K. Frontier, it's going to take you there. And then um, they order a book and they email me the picture of their completed chart. I'm going to take money off of the price of their book in in form of a rebate. So it's a way of, you know, offering people, you you like this book, try some of my others and we'll see what happens. Yeah, we'll see. Okay, parting shots from each one of us. Debbie, you go
0: first. You're my
1: guest. Um, I just wanted to mention this very narrowly focused book that I just completed on St. Joseph Church because I did it as a fundraiser for the church for some rather expensive repairs. It was the 150th anniversary of the parish. So I, I, I did all of it for free. And once the costs of production have been recouped, all of the proceeds will go back to that church. So I'm hoping people will check out my website and look for that. I'm expecting printed copies next week. Okay. So and my, 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 give, my give back to my community.
0: All right. My parting shots, buy indie, read indie, and write indie. And why not explore small presses like Modern History Press to tell your story? Read your local newspaper for inspiration. Support your local authors like Debbie. Keep your fingers on the keyboard and your butt in the chair. Enjoy the summer. Thank you for listening.